Hi, everyone. Welcome to the October 30th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. We are one week from the election, but clearly the headlines are dominated by the coronavirus. This week, coronavirus cases reached a record-breaking high in our state. The Colorado Department of Health and Environment reported 106 outbreaks by Wednesday, the highest since the pandemic started. Denver and other high-risk counties have reinstated limits on social gatherings, and some have reduced capacity limits at restaurants. Meanwhile, Governor Poa signed an executive order granting a one-time payment of $375 to unemployed residents making less than $52,000 a year. Patty Calhoun from Westford, we start with you. Um, we're getting warnings and we're already seeing examples of more restrictions. Do you think more are coming from government officials? Well, we're seeing it around the country right now because there is no place that is not experiencing these upticks. In Colorado, it's been interesting to watch Jared Polis playing it by the numbers, and you've got the dial, and you have the different numbers you have to hit to move up or down that dial with the safer at home, the coming closer to stay-at-home orders. Denver moved up the dial this week because of bad numbers in a variety of areas. What that means is our businesses that are already struggling are struggling more. I think it's it's a greater good to tamp down the spread of the virus right now, but it means if you like restaurants, go get takeout. If you're not comfortable being one of the 25% of the population, you know, their normal capacity that's allowed to be there, help the businesses all you can while you can, but also be careful. Wear your mask, be in smaller gatherings, masked, don't hang out in a small crowded area. It's just really tough. We don't want it to get any worse. And it's not, all you have to do is pay attention to the first responders, the health officials. This is not a hoax. It is not going to end November 4th, although wouldn't we be happy if it did? <laughs> David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. A lot of angles on this one. I guess one of the ones that popped in my mind since we talked a lot about constitutional stuff on this show with you is this came down from Governor Polis as an executive order of suddenly money going out to people. Um, it's a significant amount of money. Uh, I don't realize he had that kind of authority or if this was part of emergency orders, whatever it is. Uh, lots of angles to take. Take your pick, but I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I was initially skeptical, too, because a lot of what he's done, some of it has been already found unconstitutional, like the discrimination against churches we talked about last week. And as you say, the, the normal expectation in an Anglo-American democracy is the power of the purse is the hands of the uh, broadest branch, the, the, the legislature. So where does he get the power to go give grants to, to people? Well, so here's what our Constitution says, Article 5, Section 33. No monies in the state treasury shall be dispersed therefrom by the treasurer except upon appropriation made by law. And we definitely don't have that. The, this money wasn't in the long bill or any other appropriation passed by the legislature or otherwise authorized by law. That's in our state Constitution. That, that's our rules. Maybe they're a good idea, maybe not, but that that exception is definitely there. And Governor Polis's executive order, which was uh, posted online yesterday, specifically cited two state statutes that are directly on point for this, basically authorizing the governor in a declared emergency, which we're certainly in, to move money from one part of the budget to another, uh, including to use it for grants to help people affected by the emergency. You can't give more than $5,000 to any individual, and we're well under that. So uh, unlike a lot of what he's done, which is sort of just based on 
vague inferences from general emergency powers. This is action based on, on quite specific legal authorization by the legislature, so it is, uh, in a legal sense, 100% kosher. And it's also kind of good news to know that when you look over, start going through the state uh, government's uh, couches and uh, leftover purses, uh, you, you can find about $150 million in there uh, for this purpose. So that, that's an indication the, the budget is in, in better shape than, uh, than might have been feared. Eric Sonnen, political analyst and the columnist of Colorado Politics. We go to you next. Uh, Eric, there's, as we said, a lot of angles of this one. We're seeing counties making more and more restrictions, but all kinds of different shapes, whether it be Denver, Jefferson County, talked about uh, sports uh, fans of who can go to a, a high school or a, an adult league uh, uh, game. There's no, no uh, fans anymore. A lot of different things. Uh, should we be seeing probably more from the state, or is this appropriate at the county level? Well, I think we're going to see more from all branches of government, and it's probably going to be sooner rather than later. We're not even to November yet. That's two days away. And yet, as Patty well indicated, rightly indicated, these numbers are spiking up, and they are spiking up dramatically. I think what so many public officials are worried about is that there's an exhaustion level setting in with with the body politic, with people, residents, citizens across the state. Uh, Back in March when all this started, it was new, it was scary, it was threatening, but mainly it was new and everyone sort of psyched up to do what was necessary, if not everyone, at least many people. Uh, I think there's a worry about compliance this second or third time around. There's a worry about just how much investment there will be and what kind of enforcement will be necessary. To David's point, I appreciate that because I had the same questions that that you, Dominic, and others did about where Governor Polis found this particular authority or jurisdiction. Um, I think it is good news for these people who are obviously, obviously struggling. $375 will only go so far, but it is certainly better than nothing. Although it it strikes me as a little curious that he did it this week before the election, although obviously so, so many people have already voted. But the notion that if the state has $168 million lying around couch cushions and whatever, you know, I think some voters might look at that and say, well, then maybe we can reduce that income tax by eight hundredths of a point or maybe we can do this, that or the other if the state really has that money and is not in the quite in the crisis as advertised. Also join us remotely, Joey Bunch, Deputy Managing Editor at Colorado Politics. Joey, uh, you're a guy in the the political uh, reporting field. What do you make of what we saw from Governor Polis and probably other officials across the state this week regarding the virus? Well, you know, it was an act of kindness, but it was also an act of politics. You know, this was announced six days uh, before an election where, you know, Governor Polis and Democrats can can portray Republicans, Senate Republicans as the uh, evildoers who couldn't or the incompetents who couldn't pass a relief package in Congress. But, you know, you raise a good point, Eric. The uh, you know, it also reminds people that Colorado seems to have money when they want to find money. So, you know, this is a twofer, maybe a threefer. But, you know, if this is a hoax, as Patty Patty mentioned, if this is a media conspiracy hoax, then finally the media was able to pull something together because I got news for you that the media couldn't conspire to make a bologna sandwich. And, you know, but I'm not, you know, Don Jr. said yesterday, said on uh, Fox News yesterday that 
that hardly anybody dies from this anymore on the on a day that a thousand people died. I mean, we're still in this. One of my best friends in the world, Johnny Miller, my portfolio manager, is in a hospital and he may not live through the weekend. He's on a ventilator. So, yes, Don Jr., people still die from this. And, you know, I'm one of those people that uh, with my heart, if I get this, it's a death sentence. So to people who won't wear a mask and yap about their liberty, I got to tell you, folks, you look a lot different sitting where I'm sitting. Joe, you make some fantastic points, very poignant points about uh, your friend and not only your own condition, but uh, for folks wondering why we get excited about having Joey Bunch on the show, when you have a sentence like, the media couldn't conspire to make a bologna sandwich, you just don't get that from somebody else, just exactly like Joey Bunch. Good comment. Let's get to the election. More than half of Colorado's registered voters have turned in their ballots already. Unaffiliated voters now hold a slight majority of votes cast, but Democrats retain a strong lead over Republicans. A recent breakdown showed that as of Thursday morning, 59% of registered Democrats have voted, 49% of Republicans have voted, and 45% of unaffiliated voters. David, um, I realize that we're still five days out, but do we, are we seeing a just basically a lackluster turnout among Republicans in Colorado this year? No, not necessarily. And I I think nationally, uh, turnout's going to be very strong. This this has a good chance of setting an election, uh, a record for presidential election turnout. And, and that's one of the reasons uh, to be cautious about trying to, to make extrapolations and interpretations from early things. I'm, I'm not saying don't do it if, if you want to have your fun. Uh, but certainly what, what Trump is trying to do is there, there are a lot of demographically pro-Trump people, many, many tens of millions who didn't vote in the last election. And if the Republicans get them out, who, who knows uh, – what might happen. All these pre-election things of this trend and that trend, it, it reminds, you know, there was a long time when people said, as Maine goes, so goes the nation, because Maine had early voting for state offices in September. Uh, and usually if whoever, whatever party won the governorship of Maine would win the presidential election uh, that year in, in November. And then in 1936, Maine elected a Republican. Looked, it was a good Republican year in Maine. And so people were thinking the Republicans really have a good chance in, in challenging FDR. Well, as it turned out, Maine went Republican. And then on, in November, uh, Vermont went Republican. And that was it. So the sentence saying change from as, so, as Maine goes, so goes Vermont. So it, it's hard to predict things in advance. I will make one prediction. If Trump surprises many of us, including me, and wins, uh, we'll have more riots uh, starting on, on Wednesday in Denver. The Denver Police Department's already preparing for that, as are departments all over. So we're already a country like Venezuela, Nicaragua, Weimar Republic uh, in, in Germany, where if uh, one side doesn't win the election, uh, they go out and riot. Eric, we go to you next. Uh, we're five days out, but these trends have not dramatically changed. Uh, the only voting area that has really seemed to catch up in votes cast is unaffiliated. Republicans still seems to be lacking. And uh, even a George Will article uh, earlier this week talked about how the demographics over the last four years, age-wise, have changed quite a bit. So when you're looking at voter turnout so far, and again, we still have five days, what are you seeing? I'm seeing much and more, you know, far more than we can cover in a, in a brief answer. I think this year, on top of being known for everything else that this year is going to be remembered for, be known for a couple things electorally. One is very, very large, bordering on massive turnout. Four years ago, there were 129 million votes cast nationally between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. There were about 6 million for other candidates. So call it 135 million. 
Here, I think turnout could easily go to 150 and perhaps well north of 150 million. Secondly, Dominic, it will be known for a major shift in how we vote. Four years ago, 21% of ballots across the country were cast early by mail, et cetera. And that includes virtually all the ballots in Colorado, obviously, because we do vote by mail and have for a decade. But it was a 21% figure nationally. Now you already have 77, probably before the day is out, 80 million votes cast already well before the election. And that gene, even when COVID is gone, when we have a vaccine, when COVID is no longer part of our daily existence, I don't think you're putting that genie back in the ballot. Early voting is here to stay, maybe not in the magnitude of this year, but early voting is here to stay. If Republicans have any hope in this election, Colorado-wise, nationally, they have to hope that the inverse is going to happen from what's historic. What's historic is Republicans tend more than Democrats to vote early. And the late vote, the election day vote, tends to be more democratic. Here, it has to switch and pivot if Republicans are going to be competitive. Uh, we will see if that happens. There's some reason to think it might, in that Republicans, spurred on by Donald Trump, seem to be less afraid of the virus and may go out and vote uh, in person on Tuesday. But if the early voting numbers are to be believed here and elsewhere, it looks to be a democratic year. Uh, Joey, we've seen a lot of people, I think from the experience of 2016, not wanting to uh, make any bets. Now, hey, you know, everyone hedging any sort of prediction just because of how many folks were proved wrong four years ago. But numbers are numbers. Uh, from what you've seen from the early turnout, uh, what are you seeing or what are other people uh, commenting in the political coverage you're seeing? Well, you know, people who won't make predictions are people who uh, who have common sense and and uh, wisdom, and I'm not one of those people, so I'll make some predictions. Uh, you know, the Democrats in 2020 are, feel like the Republicans in 2016 to me, because I'm a big believer in mojo. You know, when you got mojo in an election, there's just mojo, and the Democrats got mojo Biden this year. You know, mojo is everything, and in Colorado, the last few election cycles, Democrats have had mojo, and Republicans haven't. You know, I've never seen people so eager to vote. I mean, my ballot was in my house less than an hour, and it only took an hour because I waited till halftime of the Alabama game to drive it to City Hall and drop it off. And, you know, I don't know if that's because of support for the candidates, or I just don't know if it's antipathy for both of the candidates. But more than anything, I think people just want to get this over with. So, you know, that's the way I see these early ballots. I see it as a, as an eagerness to put 2020 behind us. And this is the one thing you can control unless you're, you're Don Jr. and you declare nobody's dying of coronavirus anymore. Joey, another great point. I mean, now with technology the way it is, when you cast your ballot, so many of those outside parties know that you've done it. The calls stop. Much of your mail can stop. It's, it's, it's a good point. A, a lot of reasons to cast your vote early. Uh, Patty, we, we see these numbers. It's, I don't see a lot of folks getting cocky, but I do see some folks thinking there's a bigger wave. But Colorado ends up sometimes balancing out. What are you taking away from the numbers we see this week? Well, great enthusiasm for voting, not just here but around the country. It does look like we're on the way to a big record. The difference is going to be not so much in Colorado, but on Tuesday, 
who wants to go stand in a really, really long line to vote? Because that's going to be the case in so many states. In Colorado, if you can find your ballot, you can turn it in up until 7 p.m. on Tuesday. If you can't find your ballot, you are going to have to go in person to vote, but you still can on Tuesday. And you can still register to vote up until 7 o'clock on Tuesday. So Colorado's mail-in voting is looking pretty good this year, just because if you haven't already mailed it, you can still take it to a ballot box. We're not seeing the horrible long lines you're seeing in other states. I think we'll have record turnout in Colorado because of mail-in ballots. And I think we'll still see record turnout around the country, but it's going to be a very long day for a lot of people. As Election Day nears, all eyes are on Colorado since we are one of the 10 key states whose U.S. Senate race could determine which party will hold the Senate majority. However, the tightest federal race in Colorado may be in the 3rd Congressional District between Republican Lauren Boebert and Democrat Diane Mitz-Bush, which is currently in a dead heat. Eric, we go to you first in this one. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about the U.S. Senate race since, I think, this time last year. Uh, that seems to be over for all intents and purposes. I could be wrong. It's happened before. Uh, but CD3 seems to still have the, the spice of the, the, the dead heat, the kind of uh, horse race that we're looking for when it comes to politics and election season. What do you think? Yes, in terms of the Senate, I think all eyes will be on Colorado, but they'll be on Colorado only briefly because I don't think that is going to be a close race. I don't think it's going to keep us up late at night when the first batch of returns come in at 7 or 7.05. I think a pattern will be evident. I think John Hickenlooper wins this thing by high, high single digits, if not double digits. The battle for the U.S. Senate Colorado is going to be in the blue column in all likelihood, as is Arizona. It's going to look to states like Maine and North Carolina. If they pull off those four, the Democrats are probably there. And then there are a host of other states, Iowa, Montana, even Alaska, South Carolina with Lindsey Graham, that are going to be keeping people up late at night and into Wednesday and maybe into Thursday. For the third congressional district, yeah, it is a battle. I have no idea who to predict who's going to win that. I think it is a close to a dead heat in terms of polling. If Diane Mitch Bush pulls it off, my prediction is she becomes a one-term congressperson like a Betsy Markey up in the fourth CD a few years back. If Lauren Boebert pulls it off, my prediction, particularly with Cory Gardner likely being defeated, Lauren Boebert then becomes the face, the brand of the Colorado Republican Party. And that's probably the best news Democrats could ever have. Joey, uh, uh, Eric stole my thunder a little bit there. There's been some people talking about with the national attention Lauren Boebert's candidacy has received, that if she is victorious, that she becomes uh, a, a pivotal face of the Colorado Republican Party. Uh, I'm not sure if, if Ken Buck wants that since he's currently the face as the GOP chair, but uh, maybe that's the energy the GOP needs in Colorado. Uh, what are you hearing from people about the possibility? Well, you know, I, for one thing, I think Eric is reading my notes because this is two answers in a row. He's copied almost exactly what I was going to say. And, you know, if I've never heard another person say something that sounded like me, it was Jeannie back in the ballot. So, you know, I agree with Eric. You know, I think Hickenlooper's got this in the bag, but that doesn't mean the drama's over in that race yet. I predict that Hickenlooper will be primary by a more progressive candidate in six years, but I don't even think he'll make it that far. I think at some point Hickenlooper is going to be appointed to a cabinet position or an ambassadorship. And uh, Jared Polis is going to pick that Senate seat. So get used to seeing or hearing Senator Joe Neguse, because I think that's what's going to happen there. Now, in CD3, all I can say about that is, wow, 
You know, whoever thought that was going to be the most interesting race this year? I did a column on that about a month ago that people can look up if they want to. But, you know, these candidates are just so different. You know, Bobert is fun. She's exciting. She says crazy things. She's got this, you know, very colorful history. And, you know, Mish Bush is just kind of an academic, but she's very capable. So, you know, it's about the heart and soul of what Western Colorado and Southern Colorado has become. And if Mish Bush can't connect with those voters in, in Pueblo, she's got no chance. And Pueblo County went for Donald Trump four years ago. So this race really comes down to Pueblo. But I think it's going to tell us more about the Western Slope than it tells us about these two candidates. Patty, some have talked about CD3 really being the Colorado GOP's uh, Alamo, their last stand. If they can hold the watermark and keep CD3, then they've got a foothold. If not, if the blue wave washes over that, they're down to uh, really uh, um, uh, two congressional districts. What are your thoughts on the whole CD3 conversation? Well, Joey can back me up on this, but he won't be able to because he's already talked. Journalists, people always assume journalists, you know, they're, they're liberal. They only want liberals. Who wouldn't want to report on Lauren Boebert for the next two years? She is like copy gold. Everything she does and says is a little wacky or really wacky. Uh, I think if she hadn't talked quite as much as she has this campaign, she'd have a better shot at it. I mean, we just really don't need to hear about QAnon. Some of the other things she's done are a little problematic. Uh, But... It's really an uphill battle just because of the registration in that district for Diane Mitz Bush. I think she might be able to pull it off, much to the regret of those who would like to report on every crazy thing Boebert would say in D.C. over the next two years. David, does Lauren Boebert determine where the, the GOP party goes in Colorado, or are we making a lot because this is the big headline before Election Day? No, she's a, a flashy, shiny thing. So as Patty said, of course, journalists want to chase it, but that's not the, the sum of the party any more than uh, the Mrs. Castro-Cortez is. Uh, Ms. Castro-Cortez, as Joey calls her, is even though she gets a lot of attention, she doesn't determine what the uh, New York State Democratic Party is. Uh, on the idea that this is a dead heat, um, the idea comes from a internal Democratic poll which got released and then credulously accepted by a lot of the media. Um, Dave Wasserman is the uh, uh, as an editor for the for House races for the uh, Cook Political Report, which is one of the top nonpartisan uh, analyzers of elections. And Wasserman was also, by the way, in 2016, one of the guys who five days before the general election said this is going to be a lot closer than people think. Trump's got the big momentum uh, in 2016. And he says that's not the case now uh, in terms of Trump. So he's no... uh, he doesn't say things just to make one side or the other happy. Uh, His tweet on this idea that the uh, CD3 is... uh, deadlocked. Uh, He called it data worth disregarding in my book, purported analytics department, in scare quotes, internals from the Democratic or Republican uh, congressional campaign organizations, which exist to hype their party's candidates. Well, it is time for our very, very part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. I love the more media voices, the better, whether they're for Boebert or Mitz Bush or just in general reporting on stories. But I have to say the Denver Gazette Gazette's endorsement of Trump, which was also in the Colorado Springs Gazette, went a little too far when they equated Trump to Winston Churchill. David. 
if Donald Trump loses on Tuesday, which is, is what I, I expect will happen, the most important, he'll be blaming lots and lots of people other than himself. But in this case, he is, will be really the sole one uh, to blame. Back in, in March of 2016, he held a, during the primaries, he held a press conference where he, he showed off all of the Trump-branded goods, Trump steak, Trump wine, all of these things. And he was asked, can, can you act presidential? And he said, sure, I can, and essentially when I want to. And it turns out when he wants to, he can, and he's given a lot of good presidential-level speeches. But the problem is, usually he doesn't want to. Usually he behaves uh, like a, a cruel, narcissistic, lazy jerk. And a lot of people have just gotten tired of that. So when he's rejected, I don't think his the platforms or what Republicans stand for is being rejected, but I think it will be an overwhelming rejection of him as a human being. Eric, we go to you next. I significantly agree with uh, David's point. I think this has been a remarkably undisciplined campaign, historically undisciplined on the part of Donald Trump. It has been a campaign of grievance and resentment as opposed to sort of any kind of focus or discipline. And speaking of Donald Trump, my outrage are the rallies that he continues to hold where there are massive numbers of people packed together with no social distance and with very few masks. These are super spreader events and it is grossly irresponsible for the president to be encouraging and sponsoring and participating in them. Joey, we go to you. Well, call me Eric Sonderman Jr. because I'm going to pick on the Trump campaign too. You know, on Monday, they left people waiting in the heat in Arizona. Four people, 40 people needed medical attention. Then the next night in Omaha, they left people out in the freezing snow. And, and, I, and I think a half dozen to a dozen people needed medical attention. You know, the one in Arizona should have been held in the evening and the one in Omaha should have been held during the day somewhere else. You know, I don't want to see where this campaign goes if they had another week. <laughs> Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty? Thanks to Mother Nature for the snow, but especially Colorado's firefighters. When you want to see performance of duty, these people were gracious. They were good-humored. They left notes. They did a fabulous job. You're here. David? Uh, no matter what happens on Election Day, the, the tax, uh, some of them Chinese-funded on our American form of government are going to continue. Attacks on freedom of speech and freedom of thought. Our republic is in very grave danger. And I guess the nice thing is there are still some people who care, care about saving our constitutional republic and maybe will succeed. Eric? My mother, Marion Sonderman, viewer of this program, 93 years old today. Also quickly, Amber McReynolds, who has uh, been a local resource when it comes to elections, has become a national resource through her National Vote at Home organization, providing all kinds of technical support to counties and states where voting at home, voting by mail is not the norm. Joey. Uh, let me say ditto to Eric again. You know, the men, women, and non-binary people who work for the county clerks and work at the polls on Tuesday, you are what democracy looks like. Now, an election season like this needs to be sent off properly. So if you are looking for local election results on Tuesday, be sure to tune in to PBS 12 Tuesday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Our friends at CBS 4 will be hosting the coverage, including live updates and interviews, covering the results from the entire ballot, and will also feature analysis from a panel including yours truly and Mike Dino and Dick Wadhams from the PBS 12 studio. That's Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Do not miss it. That's all the time we have today for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. I'm Dominic Duzuti. On behalf of everybody 
everybody here at PBS 12. Thank you for watching. Good night. Thank <music> you.